Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTagg. And I'm Helen Thompson. This week in our penultimate episode of the year, we wanted to return to European politics, one of the great themes of this podcast. Looking across the continent today, it's quite hard to pick out a simple, easy story about what's going on. In Hungary, for example, you've got Viktor Orban, who recently vetoed a European aid package to Ukraine, but didn't veto the beginning of its accession talks into the EU. In Poland, we've just had the defeat of the Law and Justice Party, often described as the populists there. In the Netherlands, meanwhile, we've had the election of Geert Wilders' Freedom Party, although we don't yet know whether they'll be able to form a government. In Italy, Giorgio Maloney reigns supreme and appears to have struck up a close friendship with Rishi Sunak. In Germany, there's the alternative for Deutschland, who have just picked up their first mayoral victory and are second in the polls behind the Christian Democrats. And then, of course, there's Marie Le Pen in France. And I think hanging over all of this is the next elections to the European Parliament next year. So to help us guide us through this particularly knotty story is a friend of ours, Hans Kunani, an associate fellow at Chatham House, who recently wrote great book, Euro Whiteness, which raises some fundamental questions about European identity. So the question that we're going to tackle this week with Hans's help is, are the domestic politics of European countries reshaping Europe's collective future. Hans, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. You're currently coming from uh, the Netherlands, so I think that's the most obvious place to start. Can you give us a brief overview of what's going on there before we sort of pull the camera back and talk about the whole of Europe? Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Tom and Helen. And yes, obviously, in the election a few weeks ago, Gert Wilders' far-right PDD party emerged as the biggest party in parliament. As he said, it's not quite clear whether he's going to be able to form a government or not, but it nevertheless was a, a sort of massive shock. And it's quite complicated to kind of uh, figure out what exactly, what to read into the election. The sort of obvious story is that, you know, you have this uh, figure, Gert Builders, who, you know, has this very you know, Islamophobic rhetoric going back, you know, several decades. And so it's very easy to see that in terms of the sort of immigration story and there's some increased um, pressure in terms of immigration flows during the last year or so. 
And that's certainly been the way that the European People's Party, the centre-right grouping in the European Parliament, has responded by saying that we need to get even tougher uh, on migration. That's the sort of lesson to, to learn from the success of builders. But it's a little bit more complicated than that, I think. And it goes back to, I guess, this sort of tension that there's been, you know, really during the last decade in all of these debates we've been having about populism between the sort of cultural drivers and the economic drivers uh, of populism. Immigration, obviously, is a, is a cultural driver. Um, but actually, another big part of the um, election campaign in the Netherlands was around economic questions, and in particular, the cuts to public services that the Mark Rutte government had made. There's this Dutch term, bestaanszekerheid, which sort of means something like, you know, livelihood security. And this was a key theme, and it was something which both Wilders was criticising Rutte for and making an issue, but also the other figure who did quite well in the election, this guy Peter Omzicht, who is a sort of centre-right uh, figure who broke away uh, and formed his own new party, New Social Contract, which also did quite well. I think they gained 20 seats. And this was also a theme which he was uh, talking about during the election campaign as well. So, you know, in other words, I think there is a mixture of cultural and economic drivers behind the success of builders. And, and, and that, I think, would be the sort of overall conclusion that I would draw about the rise of a lot of these parties is that there's a complex mixture of these cultural and economic factors and the, they interact in some really complex ways. Hans, the last time that we talked about Dutch politics on this podcast, I'm pretty sure was in the aftermath of the Spanish election. And we talked about the then rise of the citizens farmer movement in the Netherlands, the set of questions around agriculture and climate change that were being played out in Dutch politics. How did that turn out in practice in this election? Yeah, so Dutch politics is so sort of volatile that what seemed to be happening six months ago, you know, six months later, is you know, it looks totally different. So that party just didn't do that well in the election. And yeah, I think, you know, this is one of the other, I guess, big trends is just this increasing volatility in European politics. You know, and I guess that's a long term trend over, you know, the last several decades with parties just ceasing to command any kind of loyalty and in particular established parties kind of disappearing, new parties emerging and so on. Hans, can I ask on that? You've split it up into cultural drivers and economic drivers because one of the things that is difficult for an outsider to properly comprehend about the rise of populism as a sort of catch-all term here, and particularly sort of right-wing uh, populist parties in Europe, is that in some of the places where they're doing well, economically, you would say that those countries are performing really very, very, very well indeed. You know, the Dutch must be among the wealthiest people in the world. In Poland, they've performed very well growing uh, every year and in a way that sort of, you know, certainly in Britain, we would have, <laughs> we would love to, to replicate. So is it primarily, from your view, a, a cultural issue that's driving, uh, sort of in quotes, populism? And Another, is there a difference you see between left-wing populism and right-wing populism and there's a problem about combining the two together? Yeah, so, so on the question of the role of, of economic factors in, the, in the, the rise of populism, so I think it would be too simple to sort of say that economic factors can only matter 
when if you, in poor countries, right, <laughs> in rich countries, it must be cultural. There, there has been a certain tendency to kind of think in that way. But I think that's too simplistic. Firstly, because, I mean, first of all, I think we, you know, the economic issues are often about distributional issues. So it's not just, you know, how well is your economy doing overall, but it's about winners and losers, right? So you can still have losers in an economy that's doing quite well. The rise of the AFD, by the way, in Germany is a good example of this, right? That you had some losers in East Germany, even in an economy that's doing quite well. The second thing to say about that, I think, is that, you know, even in an economy where there aren't that many losers, they might fear becoming losers. So, you know, you can have economic factors driving the rise of some of these parties based on precisely that fear of, you know, of a loss of wealth. And again, I think in the AFD, this was a key thing. And then the third thing is that, uh, you know, in, in some of these countries, you know, it's precisely because they're doing so well that you get the rise of populist parties. Again, the AFD is a really good example here. When it first emerged in 2013, it was precisely a sort of anti-transfer union party. In other words, it was opposing the attempt to redistribute wealth away from Germany. And so that you know shows, I think, in multiple ways how economic factors can drive populism, even in countries and among sections of the electorate that are doing quite well. And then on your question about right-wing and left-wing populism, so I personally think that the concept of populism has been really, really unhelpful during, you know, and it's it's really shaped so much of our political debate over the last decade or so. And one of the reasons I think it's been so unhelpful has been precisely this implication, I think that's part of the point of the term, to imply that the far left is somehow the same as the far right, um, which I just don't think is right. And what I think also that illustrates is that this isn't a, a sort of neutral analytical term, populism. There's a certain political agenda behind it. In particular, it seems to me that centre-right and sort of radical centrist parties like this term populism because it implies, you know, as I say, partly that the far left is the same as the far right, but also that there's this clear distinction between the centre-right and the far right. And so I think what's happened is that the use of that term, populism, has obscured what I think is one of the biggest stories in European politics in the last decade or so. And this gets precisely to the question which Helen mentioned at the beginning about the way that national politics is reshaping the, Europe's collective future, is the way that the there's been this convergence between the centre-right and the far-right, a kind of blurring between them, where it almost becomes difficult to know where the centre-right ends and the far-right begins. I think, in a way, that's a much more important story than the rise of populism. I think if we just push that thought a bit, Hans, on the German case, on the alternative for Deutschland, we can see a clear trajectory in the development of that party that runs through the issues that the centre-right struggled with, and particularly Merkel's government. Well, I would actually say that present coalition government in Germany also actually has struggled with the last one of these. So if we look at the trajectory, it runs opposition to bailouts during the Eurozone crisis, as you said, 2013 formation, also issues around the legitimacy of the things done by the European Central Bank to deal with that. 2015, it's the migrant and refugee crisis that really pushes the, the AFD, including its performance in the 2017 election. And now I would say the big issue has been the efforts by the new German government 
to really push forward on heat pumps as part of net zero politics. And so in that sense, you could say that what runs through them is the critique of what the governing power, if you like, is doing. At the same time as the governing power then keeps trying to adjust to what that critique is, notably the refugee and migrant crisis where Merkel's response to it in the end, when she went and made the bilateral agreement with Turkey, was to try to neutralize the issue by saying, okay, we're not having any more refugees and migrants coming at least through that, the, the ones that were coming through Turkey. And now we see the present German government retreating on the net zero to a considerable extent, I would say, over the last few months, as it became clear that the AFD was able to use that issue. So in a way that these parties to the right reflect the difficulties of governing that the parties at the centre have. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, I've always thought of the AFD not as the sort of opposite of the Christian Democrats, which is how some people who were thinking in this kind of very, very binary way, centrism versus populism, liberalism versus liberalism, wanted to think about it. I've always thought of the AFD instead as being a kind of a radicalized version of the Christian Democrats. And I think you're, you're, the way you described it is exactly right. The, in the beginning with the AFD, it emerges against the background of the euro crisis and basically says that Merkel wasn't living up to what she had promised, which was to not create a transfer union. You know, that was the narrative or the, you know, the, the way that Merkel had framed it from the beginning is we're not going to have a transfer unit. And then she was forced to actually bail out Greece and so on. And so then the AFD comes along and you know, in opposition to her response to the euro crisis. And by the way, that's where the name comes from as well. The alternative for Germany was precisely a response to Merkel's idea that there was no alternative to bailing out Greece. And they essentially say, well, you know, you haven't lived up to what you said you were going to do. And I think the same story goes, you know, for the immigration um, issue as well. And I thought it was very striking, you know, that at that time during the refugee crisis in 2015, you know, the way this was framed was, you know, this was this struggle between Merkel, who was the figurehead of liberalism, and Orban, who was the figurehead of illiberalism. But the whole time, they were in the same grouping, the European People's Party and the European Parliament. In other words, they weren't political opposites, they were political allies. And as you say, Helen, you know, Merkel and Orban had this disagreement over this one particular issue around the secondary movement of asylum seekers. In other words, you know, distributing them across EU member states. But Merkel's position, you know, very quickly fell in line with Orban's position on the broader issue of essentially stopping asylum seekers from coming to Europe. And she signed the EU-Turkey deal and so on. And so, again, I think the story there actually is one of convergence. And there's been this consensus, really, you know, ever since then in German politics that 2015 can't be allowed to be repeated. So, you know, Orban says that he won on that issue. And I think he's actually right that, that he did. And so often I think, you know, the, the only difference on some of these questions between the centre-right and the far-right is that the centre-right will often frame them in a pro-European way, whereas the far-right will sometimes do that in a Eurosceptic way. But on many of the issues, actually, they're talking about the same types of things and proposing the same types of solutions, except, you know, in the case of the centre-right, it's at the EU level, and in the case of the far-right, it's at the national level. But even that distinction, I think, is now blurring. And here, I think the paradigmatic figure would be Georgia Maloney, who has this much more harmonious relationship with the EU than, than Orban did. And, you know, I guess the, the, you know, the image that really captures that is the image of Maloney with Mark Rutter 
and Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president in Tunisia, when they agreed the refugee uh, deal with Tunisia. Well, that it, it sort of make, makes me think, what is the use of the term far right as, in the same way as, as, as populist if Maloney is a figure of the far right alongside, but is in agreement with Rutter, who is nominally a liberal, and von der Leyen, who's very much a, a centrist figure, and they are pursuing a policy that both Merkel and Orban uh, agree with. You know, you can only draw the conclusion that there is a, a convergence. And yet when we read about these countries, the frame with which we see it is still populist in quotes or, you know, or far right. And as you say, Hans, I think the, the term populist is a effectively a, a, an attempt to kind of delegitimize de whatever they are saying. It's a, it's a way that we understand that what they're saying is a bit dangerous and it's a bit anti-establishment. But I mean, that is always the nature of opposition parties, isn't it? To oppose the policies of the establishment. And in this sense, we can say that the center-right, far-right, populist right, they are opposing a set of policies that they have decided didn't work, that were yeah, failed right. policies. And, you know, it, it strikes me that the way during the last decade, by focusing on this idea of populism, what it did is it sort of suggested that this thing called populism, which, you know, the academics that work on this will, will describe either as a style, a political style, or as a, a thin ideology. The implication was that, you know, by focusing on, on, on populism, was that was the problem with the far right, was that it had this populist style or thin ideology. Whereas it seemed to me that the real problem with the far right is not so much that, or at least that's a sort of secondary problem. The main problem with the far right is it has far right ideas, right? In other words, they're thick ideology, <laughs> especially on these questions around identity and immigration and Islam. And this, as I say, I think is where this, you, you know, in particular, you see this convergence between the center right and the far right is around precisely these kinds of questions. And so then that focus on the style or the thin ideology, what that allows the center right to kind of do is to kind of say, well, we can pursue this approach on these questions around identity and immigration and Islam. But because we don't have the populist style or thin ideology, in other words, because we're not framing this in terms of, you know, a struggle between um, a pure people and a corrupt elite, which is what characterizes that, that style or that thin ideology, then it's no longer a problem. You know, and also, by the way, as soon as the populists, the far right, stop uh, you know, using that populist style or thin ideology, then suddenly they become okay. And I think that's exactly what we see with this convergence between Maloney and the centre-right in the EU, is that as soon as they drop that populism, suddenly the centre-right has no problem with them, no problem with them at all, which is quite shocking to me. I think though that there's, there's two different issues here when we bring Maloney into it, though, isn't there, Hans, which is that on the two questions which are in different ways about the European Union's external borders, one in relation to Islam, which is really, in the immediate term anyway, a Turkey question, and one in relation to Ukraine, which is a Russia question, then Maloney is entirely on side with what the centre parties want to do in relation to Ukraine, which is to support Ukraine in a way in which Wilders in the Netherlands absolutely isn't. His point is saying if he forms the next Dutch government, then it will be one that is opposed to carrying on supporting Ukraine. There's convergence on the Islam 
question, as I say, I think played out particularly in relation to Turkey, divergence between these parties on the Ukraine question. And in a way, the thing that then distinguishes Orban is the fact that he goes so strongly on both. And I think what's interesting, if we just put a little bit more back history into the Orban one, is is Orban back in 2015 and 16 very much wanted to present himself as a European. He wanted to present himself as what a Christian Democrat did. He gave a speech, I think it was either in 2017 or 18, where he was very much claiming to be the heir of Helmut Kohl in dealing with these questions. And after all, the Christian Democrats back in, in Germany, back in the early 2000s, or late 90s, one of the two, had opposed Turkish accession to the European Union on the grounds that Turkey wasn't a Christian country. Same kind of argument that Orban wants to use. So in a way, we've got to kind of like unpack quite a lot here because in different countries, different aspects of this come to the fore. And Maloney, in a way, has established her centrist credentials in the way in which the political world works in practice on the Ukraine issue. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it's, it struck me already, you know, after the war in Ukraine began, that the EU had this sort of differentiated essentially between Auburn on the one hand and the Law and Justice Party on the other hand. Until then, there'd been this sense that they were both, you know, a problem within the EU around these issues around the rule of law and so on. But very quickly after the war in Ukraine began, the EU sought to accommodate the Law and Justice Party because it was, you know, one of the most supportive countries of Ukraine. Whereas, because as you say, Orban had these pro-Russian tendencies, they sought to sort of double down on the action they were taking against Orban. They sought to sort of isolate him. But then what was even more striking to me was precisely when Giorgia Maloney became Italian prime minister. Because, I mean, here you had a, you know, an actual, you know, an Italian prime minister from a party whose genealogy goes back to the fascist party in Italy, right? So this is a, you know, it's a slightly different kind of far-right party, even than Fidesz or Peace. And the link with fascism is even stronger. And I thought of it as being, you know, not quite Le Pen becoming French president, but one step away from that. And, you know, I think the assumption had been for a long time that, you know, if Le Pen were to become French president, that's somehow the end of the EU or at least the end of the Eurozone. But what was so striking about when Maloney became Italian prime minister was that as soon as she indicated, as you say, Helen, that she wouldn't be disruptive on on the Eurozone in a way that, you know, by the way, even some of her more moderate predecessors, you know, like Renzi on the centre left had been. And secondly, when she indicated that she would be very supportive of Ukraine, that she wouldn't be pro-Russian in the way that Berlusconi had or whatever, or Salvini was then suddenly the centre-right, the pro-European centre-right, no longer had a problem with Maloney. They could work with her and Manfred Weber, the head of the EPP, even then apparently had a plan to try to, you know, form an alliance with her. And so I think what all of that illustrates is that, you know, the EU and the far right are completely compatible. The the centre-right in the EU doesn't really have a problem with the far right. They just have a problem with Euroscepticism. Yeah, I mean, in reading uh, about European history recently and in the 80s and 90s, and you see the difference between Britain's vision and, say, the French vision. And the French vision uh, is that, you know, Turkey doesn't belong in Europe. So the Christian Democrat position is that Turkey isn't Christian, but I don't think the French put it in those terms. But the French, you know, even Macron will have a civilizational kind of understanding of Europe. And I think they're quite explicit about this, but that's just different to race and Christianity and these kind of concepts. I think it's more about universal 
uh, rights and the European way of life, social democracy, these kind of things. But ultimately, they do have an idea of Europe and where its borders end. And it's very clear that it doesn't include uh, Turkey. And as Helen says, I don't think it, it goes into the Russian world. The example I always give of this, I mean, you're absolutely right that, you know, the, the centre right in France and Germany was, was opposed to Turkish membership for essentially cultural reasons. But the example I always give is Fritz Bolkestein, you know, Dutch liberal who was a European commissioner for a decade or, or so. And by the way, uh, Wilder's mentor before, you know, he now criticises Wilders, but Volkerstein was, was Wilders' mentor, which again shows this kind of, the, the sort of fluidity between the centre-right and the far-right. And Volkerstein said in 2004, I quote this in the book, that if Turkey were to join the EU, it would mean, quote, the liberation of Vienna in 1683 would have been in vain. <laughs> you know, really making that civilizational point very, very explicit. You know, so he sort of said the, the, the you know, the quiet part out loud. But I think that was a view that was, you know, largely shared on the centre-right in, in, in France and Germany, that you simply can't have such a large Muslim country in the EU. That would be the, the end of the, the EU. I think on that point, we ought to take our break, because in the second half, we want to talk about what all this means for the future of the European Union and the whole continent of Europe. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back. So Hans, let's turn to the European Parliament elections that are coming up next year. Can you give us a flavor of what is at stake here, given what we've just been discussing there about this sort of notion of a civilizational Europe? Yeah. So there's now, I think, a lot of debate and, uh, about this, about, you know, I think especially since um, the Dutch election, a bit sort of fear that this is, you know, a prelude to an even bigger rightward shift in the EU next summer. And I would say, I guess, two things about that. The first is that, what I'm calling the sort of civilizational turn in the European project, the sort of increasing influence of the far right on the EU, that can function, it seems to me, in, in institutional terms, in two ways, right? The focus on the European Parliament is, you know, is important because of the way that after the European Parliament elections, the next European Commission will be appointed. And so you can imagine a, uh, a European Commission that has even more influence from the far right than the current von der Leyen Commission does, whether that's through actual far-right figures being appointed to senior positions in the Commission. For example, there's been some speculation about whether you might have a vice president of the Commission from the ECR group, 
which is one of the far right groupings in the European Parliament. The other way that you know that it that it can happen is is you know even without that you could just have the way we've just been discussing the centre right uh, being influenced by far right ideas. One example of that would be you know the way that in the current von der Leyen European Commission you have a European Commissioner for promoting the European way of life whose job is in part to keep migrants out right which I think already illustrates the the way that you know even without far right figures in positions of power you have an influence of the far right. Um, on the European Commission. Um, but I think it's important to also say that that's only one of the two routes through which, institutional routes through which the far right can influence the EU, because the other is through the European Council. And that, I think, you know, is sort of independent of what happens next summer. You know, and we're seeing this with member state governments, you know, that have far right parties either leading them or in, in, as junior coalition partners. But that's the other route through which far right ideas can influence the EU is through is through the European Council. And so I think what we're seeing is both of these things at the same time. But the big fear is that first route that I mentioned, you know, the European Commission being influenced by the far right through the outcome of the European Parliament elections. That's, I think, the big fear uh, at the moment. I think, though, Hans, if we think about the general electoral trends in these European elections over the course of 2023, they obviously didn't all go in one direction. Notably, the Law and Justice Party, although it ended up the largest single party in Poland, lost power. And and now Poland has Donald Tusk as prime minister. And that, I think, matters in terms of the Ukraine question and the way which we were talking about in our last uh, episode with um, Shashang. But it may also matter for the future of these questions of the overall direction of political travel of the European Union, right? Because Poland does matter as a European Union country. Yeah, that's right. And of course, it's true that there's a, you know, it's so hard to actually even talk about Europe and European politics, because it's, there's so much complexity. And, you know, different things are going on in different member states, and so on. And, you know, so you have, I think you're right, you have these ups and downs in terms of elections, you know, we've seen it very much this year that you have, you'll have, you know, elections like in Spain and in Poland, where, you know, pro-European centrists are really happy because they feel as if the far right has been defeated. And then there'll be an election like, you know, the one in the Netherlands, where it looks like the far right has won. I guess I would say two things about that. The first is that I think it's fairly clear if you look back over the last decade, that although you have these individual ups and downs, the overall trajectory is pretty clear, which is that the far right is getting stronger across Europe and sort of almost everywhere in Europe. I mean, for a long time, people thought that Germany was an exception to that, that it had some kind of immunity against the rise of the far right. And now we see the AFD on 21, 22, 23 percent of the, of the vote, according to the polls, at least. So I think the overall trajectory is is fairly clear. And, and here I, I think of France, you know, which I mentioned earlier as being in a way the most important member state in terms of in terms of the future of the EU in, in this respect. You see the prospects of a Le Pen presidency just getting, you know, more and more, you know, uh, likely sort of almost day by day. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is to come back to what I said earlier about the way that there's, to put it this way, there's a way in which the far right can win without winning, which is that even if far right parties themselves don't do very well or are defeated, if the centre-right is normalising and mainstreaming far-right ideas, which again, I think is fairly clearly the case and has been for the last decade or so, there's a lot of really good academic research on this, then as I say, you end up in the same place. 
Um, although it sometimes is a little bit harder to, to see that precisely because these are centre-right parties rather than far-right parties. So, you know, I think the Spanish election was a good example of that. The, the, the Vox didn't do as well as people were expecting. The PP did quite well. But part of the reason that the PP did quite well is precisely because it had itself been influenced by, by the far-right. And in particular, the mayor of Madrid, Ayuso, was you know, campaigning in a fairly Trumpian kind of way. And so, you know, there's a sort of slightly more complex story there. I think you can't just focus on the raw data in terms of the rise of the far right uh, or the decline of the far right. You have to look at also their indirect influence in terms of their, you know, their rhetoric and their policies being adopted by centre right parties. And by the way, part of the reason I think um, I'm quite conscious of this is because at the back of my mind is the experience in Britain of Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> in the 1980s, you know, because in the late 1970s, the National Front was doing very well. And Margaret Thatcher actually quite successfully killed them off. But she did that partly by, you know, reaching out to their voters by embracing some of their rhetoric around Britain being swamped by immigrants. And then after she came to power, you had the 1981 British Nationality Act, which, you know, implemented some of their ideas. So to me, that you know, I'm, I'm very sort of aware of that possibility of centre-right parties sort of defeating the far right by becoming the far right to some extent. I guess, Hansa, I would just, I'd like to know what you thought about this idea of normalising far right ideas that are new, or are those ideas actually reflections of quite old ideas? You know, you just mentioned uh, Margaret Thatcher there and the 1981 Act, but of course, that was a reflection of a trend that had existed for a long time that Helen and I touched on in our episode about immigration, which was there was plenty of acts throughout the 60s and 70s, often by Labour governments, uh, that were tightening migration rules into Britain and the idea of what it was to be a British citizen that shrunk uh, quite rapidly through that time. And obviously, Margaret Thatcher herself was quite powerlight in her worldview as well. So, I mean, the idea of Europe as a civilization has existed for, you know, much longer than these uh, than these populist parties that have uh, are starting to get more popular. Yeah, that's ex- that's exactly right. There's clearly a, a, an older history that the far right is connecting with uh, whether we're talking about Britain or whether we're talking about the EU and, and continental Europe. And, you know, I've been writing about this and and you as you say talked about it in in, in some of your other episodes this you know, history of a sort of civilizational idea of Europe did very much inform the European project, you know, in, in its early phase in the 1950s, particularly through Christian Democrat parties. This is very much how they thought about it. And so what I call the civilizational turn in the European project, you know, during the last decade, especially since the refugee crisis, against the background of the rise of the far right, you can think of that, as a friend of mine put it, not so much as a civilizational turn, but as a civilizational return. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's important to see the way in which the geopolitics shapes this too. So I don't think it's actually just about the relationship between parties in individual countries' politics. It's when you have the questions about EU borders, and historically that means present-day Turkey, but in the 16th century that meant the Ottomans, and Russia in the period of the formation of the European economic community, that was obviously a Soviet question rather than a Russia question, but now the Russia question is very much back. When those geopolitical forces arise, then European 
politics in individual countries, particularly in those that are close to those borders in different ways, is going to respond to that. And in that sense, I think that some of the analysis of the disruption that the parties label populist has caused over the last decade has kind of missed the fact that it's happening in a geopolitical environment in which the question of like where Europe begins and ends and what that, that means is of actually really significant. It's really just geopolitically important. Yeah, I agree that there's this sort of complex interaction between sort of internal and external factors, if you like. You know, in other words, factors that are internal to Europe and the EU and factors that are external to do with the, the world in which the EU increasingly finds itself. Um, the way that the story I tell in the book, though, is that in the last decade or decade and a half since the euro crisis began in 2010, the EU's gone into this kind of much more defensive mode. You know, for two decades after the end of the Cold War, um, the EU had been in a much more sort of expansive, outward looking, quite optimistic kind of phase where, you know, you had enlargement to include Central and Eastern European countries. And I think some pro-Europeans almost started to imagine that they could remake the whole of the world in the image of the EU. That then comes to a rather abrupt end, I think, with the Euro crisis and then the other series of crises that follow it, the Arab Spring in 2011 and then the Russian annexation of Crimea in, in 2014. And so the EU becomes much more defensive and it starts to see itself as being surrounded by threats, is how I think about it. Um, and so in that sense, Helen, I absolutely agree with you that there's it's a kind of a response to these external pressures, as it were. But then I think what happens, especially after the refugee crisis in 2015, is the EU increasingly starts to imagine these threats in a civilizational way. And that, I think, is a choice. Right? You know, so in other words, what you might call the geopolitical turn in the European project, I think, is a kind of a, you know, the, the emergence of this defensive EU, I think, is a kind of a response to what's happening in the world beyond. Um, but I think it's then a choice that, that Europeans make which I think then draws on this much longer history that we were just discussing to essentially increasingly think of international politics in terms of a clash of civilizations. Well, Hans, that's absolutely fascinating. And thanks so much for coming on to help guide us through what is just an incredibly complex, knotty situation uh, in Europe and, of course, in, in the UK as well. I think we'll have to get you back on at some point next year, once, perhaps once these results from the European uh, Parliament elections are in and we can see much more clearly the future direction of Europe and this civilizational turn, as you say. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And with that, we'll wrap it up for this week. Thanks for listening. Once again, apologies for any sound quality issues. We had uh, a bit of a technical meltdown here at Unheard Studios. Next week, in a special episode, Helen and I will be discussing two of our favourite books, not on Europe's future, but on Europe's past. Please do tune in for that. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.